Hey Slava Connection listeners, we're coming to you from self-quarantine in Austin, Texas with a great episode uh, with Joe Crescenti. He is a media literacy fellow at the American Center in Moscow and we got a chance to chat about media literacy, naturally, uh, as well as uh, karaoke diplomacy and a little bit of book publishing as well. Take a listen. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. All right. So, hi, Joe. Thank you very much for joining us on the Slavic Connection in these odd self-isolating times. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm self-isolating. I'm taking it very seriously. (laughs) <laughs> so I know you uh, kind of split your time between Russia and the United States. Where are you currently? I'm in Moscow. Yeah. So how, how is it going over there? How, how are those compared to uh, the U.S. right now? Well, you know, a month ago today, I think Russia had 20 cases and today we have 12,000. So there's been enormous, you know, obviously uh, spread of, of the virus, unfortunately, in, in particular, in the last 30 days, I remember looking at, at you know, uh, at the U.S. from a distance and, you know, wondering, should I stay here? or Should I go back to the U.S. for this period or not? And I decided to uh, stay and self-isolate here just because, I mean, the U.S. seems so uncertain. My parents are quite old. I didn't want to put them at risk. And that's the only place we would go. And, you know, we also have a great potential to drive each other, you know, kind of bonkers. And so said this was probably the best thing. <laughs> How's it going? I mean, from... The end of March, uh, we've been on self-isolation mode in Moscow and, and pretty much throughout most of Russia. What that means is, you know, technically we're not allowed out unless, um, you know, you go into the near, a nearby store or pharmacy or to take out the trash or to walk your dog um, within 100 meters of your building. Um, I guess uh, some people are you know, allowed to go to work, but it's pretty limited. So basically in the last 10 days, you know, 10, 10, 11 days, 11 days ago, it went into effect. We could go Monday. I have been out three times, twice to go to the store, once to take out the trash. That's it. So, uh, and I hadn't left my neighborhood two weeks before that. So I've had limited, you know, I have not been on public transportation in like 26 days or something like that. So I've been living a, you know, kind of. Closed in life, for sure, uh, as, as are pretty much everybody I know. So I wouldn't say that <laughs> I'm special or anything like that. I can definitely yeah. relate to that, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've been very busy even working remotely. Um, you're currently a media literacy fellow at the American Center in Moscow. And with media literacy in particular, it's always a very important topic to discuss with you know, the spread of the internet and connection through social media. But in this age of COVID-19 and misinformation and so many people relying on the internet, how, how has your job changed since, since the outbreak? Well, it means that, you know, I can basically find examples from everyday life all the time. And I think a lot more people, you know, let's say a year ago when I said media literacy, you know, some people would express some interest and say, yeah, that's maybe important or something. But I think a lot more people are seeing the value and the relevance of a topic such as such as media literacy these days, because pretty much everybody's affected, whether you've been Zoom bombed. Hopefully we won't get Zoom bombed here. 
Hopefully not. Uh, but, it, but I mean, it's, it's really remarkable, like the level of like, you know, that that that, that was a, you know, a low, uh, you, you know, not not widely used kind of video conferencing technology. It had like 10 million users on a daily basis in December. Now it's got 200 million. So the trolls have kind of migrated to to Zoom and, uh, you know, all sorts of inappropriate stuff's been happening. Offensive stuff's been happening, unfortunately, there. Uh, a lot of bad health information is spreading. I think by now people have seen most of it and hopefully they're you know, a little bit more cautious about this kind of stuff. But our neighbor here in Moscow was forwarded something that was quite, you know, doubtful to the veracity of the information, as well as some other relatives I have in the United States have been sent this kind of stuff. Um, a lot more people are taking it seriously and are kind of aware of how easily you can be manipulated in a, in a, in a time when you're quite vulnerable. Uh, you don't know where to look for good information. You don't know how to judge what's, you know, good information what's less than savory. Sure, yeah. And I think at least here in the United States, I think a lot of what people have been struggling to parse with is what, you know, they're being told through the CDC, through um, WHO, but the administration sometimes doesn't align with what the, you know, approved media is saying. Is there a similar situation to Russia? I, I'm just curious, honestly, of, of the comparison between uh, media literacy in the US and Russia. Um, with the different like animal that their media outlets are. Yeah, I'd say the most authoritative sites, honestly, have, for me have been Moscow City website and, you know, kind of the CDC equivalent, which is Ros, I always forget this huge, long acronym, but it's Roskan, but not Zor, which uh, I, CDC equivalent. And then certain trusted, this is when your trusted media sources really come into play. And what I, what I've been telling people for the last couple of years is, you know, A, media literacy is personal. What is a priority for you? Right. You know, my father, it was really hard for him. You know, he thought it was interesting what I was doing, you know, say, but he always had a hard time with, uh, you know, uh, fact checking and stuff like that. But I got him to understand what it was because I got him to see that, you know, for certain things in your life, you know, you, have a, you, you make it a priority to like be very exacting about the kinds of information you have. When we're talking about your retirement, you all of a sudden like perk up and like triple fact check everything, you know, to make sure it's 100% correct. You should be doing this, you know, with any kind of health related information. But I think, you know, everywhere around the world right now, there's a, there's a lot of confusion about what is, you know, because it's a scientific thing, right? Science is all about, we can say with as much certainty as is possible today, but with no guarantees. And that's not what want, people want to hear. Uh, so that's, that really is frustrating for a lot of people. I think people are really like waking up to realize it is really important to know how to kind of navigate the media landscape that's out there. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned trusted sources, but even then I, I got to get a little bit of a sense of people have an idea of what a trusted source is, and then that's not always the case. So I guess the bigger question is, you know, how do you stay media literate in kind of an era like that? How do you make sure that the websites that you're using are trustworthy and that what's coming out of them is supported by outside sources or is actually factual rather than, you know, opinion based? Ooh, that's a, a big ask. <laughs> yeah, it's a big ask. It's not something that's easy to answer in like five words or less. But I was also involved in academia for a while. Right. When I would see somebody, you know, make an argument in their introduction of their paper and they would cite like every single source possible, every major 
you know, kind of person who's commented on this aspect of this, you know, is listed there. And you see that the author of that, you know, piece has really done their research. You know, that's what I look for, you know, in, in, in media articles. I want to know that they've talked to the right people. They've talked to as many of them as possible, you know, and they're giving you, they're being very transparent with their process. You know, they're letting you know when they talk to them, who they talk to, what that person does, what their role is, why they're important, why they're trustworthy. You know, as much more, more information I see along those lines, the, the way that I've, if I can tell that they've looked at it from various angles, they've examined different side aspects to the story. They're getting to the point quickly. You know, those are some good giveaways that, you know, there's a story, it's been well-researched, it's been well-sourced. They've, you know, there was consideration that went into this. This was not a quick, you know, let's just get this off, off, off on the presses so that we can get a lot of clicks on this. That's something that, for example, uh, you know, allows me to buy into uh, and, and, and believe, you know, this, it's, a, it's a game, you know, uh, in which you're, you're, you know, they're trying to get you to believe and you're trying to also believe in that process. It's a, kind of a two-way street. I think the biggest challenge right now I think journalists probably would love it if they didn't have the demands of the media landscape, you know, which, uh, you know, uh, has, a, has a desire to bring in revenue, has a desire to try to report all aspects of the story. Everybody wants to hear so many aspects when, you know, I think we just need to knew, know a few things, you know. We're, we're demanding a lot from our media organizations right now, when really we just need to know how things are going. WHO, I believe, even called this an infodemic, right? Which just means that there's so much information out there that's really hard to see what the main, you know, kind of stories are. But I think there are a few, you know, kind of main stories. They're just, it's really hard to get, a, you know, get, get, get through to people. And I think just 20, 30 years ago, you'd have a headline and it would be there all day, no matter when you picked up that newspaper. But today, you know, they've got to rotate those on major websites. They've got to rotate that stuff like every two hours. So even if you are able to do that story that is really good, that will inform the public, it's only going to be prominent for a very short period of time. Yeah, it's the same. It's just like how hospitals are currently being overwhelmed. The media is also being overwhelmed with trying to keep up with the demand for more information when I think you're completely correct. I think keeping something, a focus on something where you have just the necessary information that you need is so vital, but it's so hard to stay on top of that. I saw on your Twitter that you rely a lot on just coronavirus test numbers, like how many tests are being distributed. You said that that's a really good indicator, you know, of the actual status in a country. I, I found that really interesting because I, I do think there's a lot of power behind numbers, just numbers alone. And I mentioned that, you know, in another class today that Russia has put in over a million tests right now. And immediately all I got back was, where did you get those numbers? What is the validity of those numbers? So even, even then, you know, you have the numbers, but there's always a question of where are these numbers coming from? So in that kind of sense as well, like how do you approach something like that even when you think you're being presented facts? No, that's a great, that's a great point. And it's great that people have gotten to this level of enlightenment that they push back on stuff, you know. Uh, Grad students. I do, I do, yes, but there, 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 there is a lot of pushback. I, I do encourage people to be skeptical, but not cynical in that in that regard. I have seen people, be, you know, like, well, we can't believe anything, you know, and that's not a good way to do it. You have to come up with your own kind of personal criteria. You know, in terms of media, I describe it as a relationship you would have with a friend, right? You should get to know a few good sources, big news sources, really well. 
should read them a lot. Uh, you should get to know who their journalists are. You should figure out what's the point of view behind it. It's who's o- who owns this media organization? Uh, do they have some kind of mission? And so on and so forth. Get to know them really, really well. Read all their stories. And then you, you get to know what their flaws and what their blinders are. And so when they make a mistake, you know, if your friend's 15 minutes late, you're not going to disown them. You're, you're going to be like, come on, try, try better next time. And the same thing with, uh, you know, media, you know, occasionally, you know, uh, some trusted media sources that I read right. frequently, you know, they'll make a mistake. But I know that this is something, you know, there's a blinder they maybe have about a certain issue or they made a mistake. I understand journalists are you know, humans. They don't normally make these mistakes. I can understand maybe there's just a lot going on that day and the journalist and the editor who was supervising had a lot of pressure and they were unable to do it. And I, I can I can forgive that. So in a same in the same way with sources and stuff, you know, I've got my trusted sources and I trust that they take this stuff seriously and I trust their processes and I understand their logic and their thinking. And so therefore, at these kinds of times, it's really important because I can look to them and know that they're thinking, you know, I'm their audience. They want me to be informed and they're, they take our relationship seriously and they're not going to let me down for a cheap clickbait kind of thing. I look to Medusa, who looks at stopcoronavirus.ru every day for their source of information that's coming from government numbers. And that's the best we have at this point. I trust it as best I can. I don't know what else you can go on. You could just be a total skeptic or you can use that. And that's the best information we have. It's kind of like scientists. Scientists have a really hard time explaining, you know, I feel for Dr. Fauci, you know, sometimes when you get up there and try to explain things because he's doing the best he can, but he can't say, if we do this, X will happen. It doesn't work like that. To the best of my knowledge today, we think that this is likely. That's what science do. Uh, journalists, you know, the, the old adage that, you know, they're writing the first draft of history. There's something to that, right? You know, 20 years from now, people writing their PhD dissertations will be able to look at this with, with a lot of insights that we just don't have because things are happening so quickly. I mean, so quickly. I mean, we went from two weeks, two and a half weeks ago in Moscow, in, in Russia, we had under 500 cases 17 days ago. Today, we have almost 12,000. It's hard to predict these things. This, the, 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 how things spread is just, uh, it's really hard. I think, I think sometimes I see in the media this, this uh, kind of, and you see this on Twitter a lot, <laughs> for sure, is like people trying to say, well, this group of countries did a really good job and this group of countries didn't. And that is just, mm-hmm. it's just outlandish, right? Nobody saw this coming. Yeah. Nobody was 100% prepared. Yeah, there's there's so many unknowns and everything you think you you try to assess as factually as you can, but the general consensus is that it's too early to say for so many cases in so many countries of did we completely go wrong, especially in the U.S. as well, where reports are coming out that President Trump knew about coronavirus COVID nineteen since December and nothing's been done, but it's so difficult to completely assess what's a complete failure, what's a complete success, because we're still every single day is new information and new updates. Uh, But in light of that, you know, now reports are, you know, coming out of what's going to happen afterwards, how that's going to change our relationship with data, with the internet, and with, you know, privacy as well, because, uh, you know, you can see it in Russia as well. Uh, You pointed out on Twitter that uh, Russia is releasing reports of you know, they're monitoring uh, citizens' locations to provide reports of how people are self-isolating and giving reports on that, which is, I think, really great information. But the flip side of that is that, you know, people's privacy is being 
gently invaded in, in terms of their locations being reported. And the U.S. is having the same thing where people are saying, you know, our temperatures are going to start being monitored when we go into stores and, and things like that. So do you kind of have a idea of what the future is going to be like? And, you know, I think with media literacy as well, I think that's just going to be as vital after this pandemic dies down, whenever that may be. Yeah, for sure. But the thing is, we're, we're, people might be waking up to a lot of this kind of stuff right now. But this has been going on. I mean, you know, uh, geolocation stuff is just, they're just, just new kinds of ways to do it. And most of the stuff we do, you know, I think most people, if they had to put an up-down vote to it, right, about stuff like this, right, they'd say that probably on the whole, if they had to make a decision, is it might, you know, am I wor- worried about my privacy or am I more worried about the convenience provided by allowing all these different websites I use, my location, my, my habits, does that make my life easier? Probably more people would go for the, you know, it makes my life easier or it makes my life better in some way, right? Because of that, people are able, in Moscow, traffic's a huge problem. I think people are totally fine with that data being collected because it keeps the roads kind of traffic free. And right now, I know when is a good time to make my once, make maximum twice weekly, you know, visits to the store because there's very few people on the street. It does give us a sense of how well the country is self-isolating. There's a lot of stuff on Twitter about people like, oh, nobody's paying attention to it. That means I don't have to either. This is one great tool you can look and say, no, if you compare it to, you know, uh, the amount of people that would be on the street on a normal Friday several months ago before the coronavirus pandemic, you can see that the numbers are down significantly. And they're significantly here and they're significantly in every city. I think for the world, the world has to, you know, I think there's this kind of like uh, false binary of privacy or no privacy, right? Um, where we just really have to change our relationship, you know, to privacy and get used to that and make decisions for ourselves and take ownership of that. You know, if we want to be, we can live somewhat private, you know, in a lot of ways, but there's sacrifices these days to doing that and sacrifices to your convenience sacrifices to your ability to, uh, you know, uh, kind of connect with other people, um, to, to be able to do certain things, you know, for sure, to find certain things, for sure. If you really want to make that, you know, if you're really put off by the privacy stuff, uh, changes that are going on, you know, there are ways to opt out of that to a certain degree. I think it's more productive to kind of, you know, try to think about what is what does privacy mean today? It definitely does not mean what it meant when I was, you know, a little kid growing up in the 80s. Very different. But it doesn't mean that it's it's evolved. Some of it I'm, I'm still uncomfortable with. Uh, some of it I've just gotten used to. I think a lot of people have gotten used to. I mean, the thing is, like, very, you know, quite young people. I've had conversations with people in, like, early 20s, for example. And the stuff that they would do is, is, is not comfortable for me. But, uh, you know, I don't think we, you know, and that, that kind of just made me realize we're both kind of have our right to think these things. You know, I have a different set of experiences by being a bit older. Uh, but, you know, they grew up at, at a time when privacy meant a very different thing than when I grew up. When I was a kid, I was allowed to just be home by dinner. My parents couldn't find me unless they drove around the car around the neighborhood to find me. You know, that, that is like something that would be shocking for, you know, most people who are 20 years old today. I have that kind of freedom. Um, you know, so I think in my, I think a lot of conversations I have with my father who's in his late seventies as well, just our understandings are all different. You know, our relation technology has forced us to redefine our definition with privacy. So yes, definitely take a new, try to figure out, you know, with technology for sure, we take it on and then think about the ramifications later. That's always been the case. Always. Like you can look back in history, 
electricity, radio, all this stuff, you know, television. And that's, that's also something useful. I mean, information is power, as they say, right? So just being conscious of the changes and conscious of the things rather than letting it sneak up on you and being like, oh my God, the world has changed completely and I just wasn't aware. That's much more frightening than kind of being aware of what you're sharing and what you're not sharing. are focusing on the future. I think right now of how this is going to change our relationship overall, not with it, just with each other, but with the internet and with the government. And I guess I, I'm just kind of curious to see if, if you think that, you know, with media literacy and with our relationship with how we access information through the internet, is it, is it going to kind of become stronger? Are we going to become more reliant on the internet or with so many changes being made of you know how we're accessing this information and how people are collecting data that we're going to become potentially more distrustful of it or more wary of using the internet from my you know limited perch you know um i think we're definitely gonna i mean i think of anything this last two months have shown is we are going to use the internet a lot more sure um you know i wouldn't be surprised if more people are working remotely after this is done because so many people have shown that it is possible and that will reduce costs for a variety of businesses where there'll be fewer, less travel potentially, I don't know. You know, uh, at some level, you know, with all the you know, environmental concerns, it seems like this is just another thing to add to that, you know. And there's one way to look at data and privacy as well, right? You know, my father gets worried about things in such minute ways, like, oh, they're going to be looking at me exactly. You're just a little dot amongst a million dots, you know? I mean, it is also useful to take a look at and to understand what data privacy is and understand that it is possible these breaches are, are serious and, and occasionally, you know, bad actors and, you know, can get a hold of this information and do bad things with it. Uh, but for the most part, most data collection is just like you're one in a billion, you know. You're like a drop in an ocean in a lot of ways. You're so anonymous in so many ways with most of the data that's collected that you're going to worry about every last thing in, the, in that regard, you know. You know, it's going to be challenging to, 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 to progress into the future in a lot of ways. But yeah, no, for sure, like these breaches need to be taken seriously. And, you know, it has been shown that when, you know, there's pushback and a breach, like Facebook made that breach, there was a lot of like blowback and Congress seemed to take it quite seriously. And uh, the media took it quite seriously as a story. You know, I think they then take it seriously as well. So uh, I'm not saying you should take a back seat and just allow everything just to happen. Um, you know, I think society societies around the world will continue to evolve in their relationship to it and push back where they think it's going too far. It's good to really just be aware of what, what's being collected of you. I mean, you're being, so much is being collected of you uh, that, you know, if you were to worry about every last thing, you, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be able to accomplish anything. I think, I think that's a good stance to take. Sometimes you have to take a step back and realize that you are just small fry in a very, very large world of many, many internet users and yeah, you are you are just a small dot and not to worry about the small stuff sometimes. I mean, maybe if you live in a village of six people or something, <laughs> and, you know, data was being collected on you, then they could really pinpoint, oh, it was so-and-so, you know, or something like that. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, I live in a I live in a I live in a city of 13, 14 million people and uh, I've lived in New York. And, you know, I mean, I'm, 
sure, you know, it does bother me a little bit sometimes, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, you know, we're all in this together and nothing says that more than data collection. So I'm focusing a little bit on the negative side of things of, you know, us becoming more interconnected uh, through this outlet. But I think especially in kind of this traumatic experience, we forget that there might be positives to this. And I think it has opened up the fact that so many jobs can be done remotely and so much can be done via Zoom and via Skype. And uh, I, I'm kind of getting at the fact that, you know, you have a bit of history in um, international exchanges and kind of diplomatic exchanges. You worked on the Future Leaders Exchange Program. And I kind of wanted to pick your brain and see how you, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that this might improve relations, at least on a grassroots level with a lot of countries, especially with U.S.-Russia. You know, a lot of big programs and funding for big programs that had exchanges between the U.S. and Russia have been dying out or falling apart in recent years, along with the actual U.S.-Russia relations. Do you see any kind of glimmer of hope in that and that, you know, we might be able to if not physically kind of improve our relations, at least to people-people exchanges, but kind of get more, more programming going just even digitally? Perhaps. I have seen a lot of, unfortunately, there are a lot of programs that have been curtailed or, you know, or potentially could be curtailed as a result of this. So hopefully that won't happen because physical, you know, I mean, the thing is the, the virtual should not replace the physical, you know, in, in, the, in that sense, in, in the long term. And I'll say that, you know, the thing is, right, there, there are there are stereotypes on both sides, and I just interviewed a bunch of uh, students for uh, this program called Mega, which is the Media Exchange for Global Development, and uh, sorry, Global Achievement, and uh, it's it's a program that would be going into its second year. Hopefully, it goes through uh, this July, and what it does is it sends uh, young Russian journalists, media makers, uh, uh, for a one month uh, program to the United States. A, that, that kind of programming is very challenging to do. There's been a variety of programs and, and events that we were going to do here in Moscow that we were just unable to do. I was supposed to be traveling all of March, you know, around Russia. Uh, I only I made it to Vladivostok at the beginning of March, but trips to Kaliningrad and Chelyabinsk and Yekaterinburg and Perm didn't happen. I've been able to do some, you know, online stuff with Chelyabinsk. I think talking to those students, they they reminded me there, there is just like this level of like Americans really don't know Russians very well. Russians don't know Americans very well. Occasionally, you know, maybe Russians get some of the popular culture and Americans get get some some popular culture, too. But usually it's not it's not a very, you know, productive relationship in that way. But I, I think a lot of Americans have been been able to see the isolation memes. Have you seen those where people take a paint, people take a painting and then a Russian recreates it in their home. And I think, I think that's been pretty popular. And, and so there's some element of the human side being able to do it. Both Russia and America are going to have to start thinking about, you know, how to, how, to, how to continue doing kind of exchanges. And, you know, the online might do it. It might facilitate it. It might make it easier. That, that's, that's still to be seen. Uh, but I do still believe probably person-to-person kind of stuff, whether it's sister cities. I mean, there are, there are, by the way, you know, I think there's this general sense in Russian studies in America that there, there are very few exchanges going on. There, there are a lot. There still are quite a few. They, some of the bigger ones like Flex, which I used to work on, you know, that was a big one that sent about, oh, I don't know, 500 to a, or 300 to a thousand, depending on the years, students to America anyway. There are still all sorts of initiatives that are still kind of happening. 
They might not as get as much attention as they used to get. They might have fewer people participating, uh, but there is still interest, I think, on both sides to, to really do that. Person to person is obviously best, but hopefully maybe maybe people are taking an interest or sitting at home and trying to figure out what's going on around the world and interacting in different ways. But it's up to people who have something to do with both countries, uh, both here and over there, uh, you know, to continue to push those kinds of things. You know, it's a challenging time. Nobody, you know, it has been, it will continue to be, I'm afraid, um, for Russia-U.S. relations. Uh, the best that people who are, know Russia in the United States or know America, you know, in Russia to do is to keep these channels alive, keep all the exchanges happening, keep different kinds of exchanges of information and culture happening to the best of possibilities. And hopefully someday the big picture stuff will catch up. The U.S. and Russia will be able to co cooperate at a very high level. So I actually kind of setting media literacy aside, I actually wanted to bring the point a little bit to you. Uh, on your website, you mentioned that you recently completed a book. Congratulations. That, that's a big yeah. undertaking. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that project when we might see that come out? Oh, if it was, so, if it was just so easy and I could tell you, you know, I mean, honestly, trying to be a scientist right now and trying to predict publishing, especially non-academic publishing is maybe a little more predictable, but really slow because there's just fewer people writing academic books and fewer publishers can kind of figure out that pipeline. You know, I've been working on the book for about three years and I, I was in a, 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 an MFA program for creative writing and fiction. So, I mean, I was, I was actively kind of working on that kind of thing. And I knew I wanted to write a novel uh, as part of the program. And I started it three years and three months ago and it took 10 versions, so 10 drafts. And I remember, you know, being in a workshop prior to uh, entering the MFA, and, and I, I was working with this one writer, Ron Curry, who's got about four novels out. He's doing a lot of writing for TV these days. And he, he told me that his fourth novel took 17 drafts. And I really thought, no way, no way. You're, you're making that up. You're just trying to, like, you know, get us to be, you know, disciplined and, you know, take this seriously. And I appreciate that. But, you know, there's no way that that, that can be true. And then, and then you try to sit down and write one, especially your first one. I'm in the very beginning stages of my second one. And, you know, I hope that goes a few fewer drafts, but who knows? Uh, but it's not as scary as you think. I mean, now, now that I've gone through it, it's been three years and three months. I've written that thing in like five, you know, little bits of it in like four or five countries. In like I don't know how many cities. And even in the U.S., there's probably seven or eight states where I put in some serious work on the thing. Anyway, it's, uh, it, it, is, it does take place largely in Russia. It's about a guy who's kind of like this, um, it's kind of this like child musical prodigy in this, in this boy band in the early 90s in New Jersey. And um, a, a lot of bad things happen to him and the band falls apart and uh, he's basically left a, some relatives die and he's kind of really alone. And he gets this opportunity to go study abroad in the late 1990s in Russia. Um, and he takes it and he ends up staying for uh, 16 years he kind of gets a second chance after he's there for a really long time doing a variety of you know, different kinds of things. He gets this kind of second opportunity to like take the stage, which he's kind of like been dreaming about the whole time, but he hasn't been able to figure it out for a variety of reasons. And he finally gets this opportunity. And then just as he's like, you know, gotten to his apex, you know, some, some political stuff happens and um, he's faced with some challenges and people start questioning who he is and, you know, what he's doing, and he ends up uh, having to leave Russia. Yeah, I think it's good. I've worked, you know, really hard on it. I hope it'll be out you know, in a couple of years. 
Uh, I hope that I soon find an agent who's really excited <laughs> about it and will try to sell it, you know, good publishing house and that'll all work out. But, you know, I, I know so many writers and I've seen, you know, some people succeed and a lot of people not succeed and a lot in between. Um, so I'm trying to keep my expectations very realistic and grounded and uh, very, you know, try, maybe the same with when I look at information, I, I'm just skeptical, I'm just skeptical. But hopeful. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll, that'll work out for you and we'll get a chance to read it and have you back on the podcast to talk about it, promote the book. Great. Um, <laughs> uh, that actually the musical aspect of it leads into my final silly question in that uh, on your Twitter and on your website, you mentioned that you're a former editor and former journalist. You're a writer and you're a teacher, but you also say that you're a karaoke diplomat. I would love to know what a karaoke diplomat is. Well, you know, back to Russian-American <laughs> relations. I think it was the summer of 2009, I was on the Critical Languages Scholarship in Tomsk uh, at Tomsk State University studying Russian. And it just, you know, there were so many times we'd go out and, you know, it's not a, it's not a place that has a ton of foreigners, for sure. We were a group of 20 Americans, an amazing group. Heather Rice, who you know, who has been a guest on this podcast, was our, was our group leader who I've, I'd known Heather for years, even before that, um, when I was in Indiana, we'd go out for karaoke and we'd like all of a sudden, and, and, and this happened, we did karaoke in Novosibirsk and Tomsk. And I went on a side trip to Krasnoyarsk that summer. And each time I realized it really brought people together very easily because you'd both know the same song. Even if you don't know how to approach one another, it's an amazing icebreaker. All of a sudden you're sitting at the same table. All of a sudden people are like starting to have that kind of dialogue. Um, so I firmly believe. I also have won five competitions uh, in the United States and in Russia and three in Turkmenistan. And I've been told sometimes that an asterisk maybe needs to go along that because they don't have the hugest karaoke scene. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, it's, it's this weird thing that can bring together, you know, um, business conferences, uh, different groups of people from different countries. You all know the same songs. And that's something to, something I really wish that everybody, you know, right now during the coronavirus, U.S.-Russian relations would just get around common ideas, big common ideas, you know, that can bring you together and allow you to just take a breather and not get too caught up in the, in the small stuff that's really not as important as the big stuff is. So the takeaway is sometimes to take a deep breath from all the coronavirus news and just sing a song together with some other. <laughs> Italy did it. Did you see? Did you see? You've I seen did, those videos, I right? I haven't seen that. I haven't. I've not seen that repeated in any other countries as successfully. But you know, it was so so amazing to see like the people on their balconies, right, singing along, singing the same songs because we all do sing the same songs. We might not be aware of it. We might have forgotten the words sometimes. But when it comes down to it, we do sing the same songs. We do. We'll have to we'll have to put together a Zoom meeting and get some other people okay. together on that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Joe Crescenti, for joining us on the podcast today. We'll have to have you back sometime for, to talk about that book. Okay, sounds good. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lara. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.